Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. William Morris is renowned for his work as an artist and designer, but he was also one of Britain's greatest socialist thinkers. Morris combined his opposition to capitalism with a deep understanding of environmental questions that was rare in his own time. Our guest today is Matthew Beaumont. He's a professor of English at University College London, and his books include The Spectre of Utopia. Many people will be familiar with William Morris, perhaps primarily as an artist and a designer who still has a very high reputation to this day. But he was also deeply engaged with the world of politics. How did Morris define himself politically? Well, he defined himself as a communist from the mid-1880s. It was a long journey to that point, but he firmly asserted that communism was the ideology with which he identified in the last 10 years of his life. There are various reasons for, for doing that. Socialism was a was an extremely factional and vociferous entity in the late 19th century in England. And he believed that socialists on the whole were those who identified themselves with a reformist tradition. So he was, in calling himself a communist, identifying with a rather different revolutionary tradition derived from the Paris Commune, among other things. But you're absolutely right to say that uh, that that will come as a surprise to many people today because he is very much associated still with the textiles and and tapestries that one finds in museums all over the world and and in sort of bourgeois drawing rooms, as it were. It was almost concertedly turned into what uh, Robin Page Arnott in 1934 called a a harmless saint. He was a sort of bourgeois saint, a saint of, of bourgeois design for many, many decades. And it wasn't until various scholars and particular socialist ones like E.P. Thompson started to uh, take another look at him and to open up the revolutionary tradition that he had himself intervened in, that, that we began to remember what he'd been like as an activist in the 1880s and 1890s. What was the social background from which Morris came in 19th century Britain as he was on his way to this political destination? Well, he himself came from a from a bourgeois, sort of haute bourgeois background, in fact. His father was a financier, worked for a company, I think, called Sanderson & Co. in the city of London. And he, in fact, died when, when Morris was just hitting pubescence. I think he was 12 or 13 in the mid-1840s, which was rather devastating to the family, which from then on had to live off his stocks and shares. So William Morris Sr. had major shareholdings in in copper mines in the West Country of of England, in, in Devon in particular. But they raked in quite a good deal of money. And although the uh, the family had to downsize a little bit in Essex, where they lived in an extremely well-appointed and large home, they had to move to a slightly smaller one, still a very large one. They were remained a, an extremely affluent family. And of course, all his life, he, he wrestled with that, with that legacy, with a certain class guilt, I suppose. There's a wonderful line in in Adorno somewhere, I can't remember where, where he says, Adorno, that uh, that in order to, to hate a tradition, 
you have to have lived it or lived in it. I'm probably paraphrasing very crudely there. But William Morris was someone who who lived inside a tradition. He was brought up in a particular upper middle class 19th century tradition. But it was precisely because he'd grown up in it that he came to hate it with such passion and and loathing. That that was something that was exacerbated, I suppose, by his experience at, at in a British public school, in other words, a, a private school, in a place called Marlborough College, where as a teenager he was really quite bullied, I think probably largely because of his his aesthetic sensibilities. And that too, I think, reinforced his sense of resentment against the class in which he had been born and 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 where he was being raised in effect like like everyone of that class of that time no doubt still true today to to be a, a member of the ruling class to be to be one of the leaders of the of the imperial nation our producer connor gillies recently paid a visit to the william morris gallery in london the gallery is located in a building that was the morris family home during his teenage years connor asked some of the visitors about their impressions of morris he chose to make art along socialist principles. Art should be for everyone and can be for everyone. And the idea that art isn't just painting, it's not something that's in a gallery or in a museum. It's wallpaper, it's rugs, it's curtains, it's everything around you can and should be beautiful. Well, I know that he's an artist, poet, a painter, man of many talents, but more and more things are being mass-produced and I'm wondering how many ordinary everyday people could afford to have his wallpaper and his designs and his pictures. We got married in this building, my husband and I, so I I like the combination of the designs and the socialist philosophy. There's just something very peaceful and thoughtful about those designs for me. It's more like a socialist art, uh, accessible to the common person and not like a pursuit of the rich beauty being important to living and they're just they're just beautiful designs (laughs) aren't they they're just lovely to see well i have a william morris bedspread from john lewis which costs quite a lot of money and i consider that probably incompatible with william morris's socialist sensibilities that's so there like that's all (laughs) like what role did the ideas of john ruskin play in the thinking of morris about culture and society these were absolutely crucial ruskin it's hard to remember today because he's an unfashionable figure in, in in many respects was was one of the towering intellectuals of the of the mid 19th century in victorian britain and had wide influence elsewhere in, in in the globe including in the united states he was an art historian and an architectural historian and he drew himself but he was also a, a social critic and in his best work he brought those different faculties, their different skills, those different discourses together. Most important place that that happened, especially for for Morris, was in a chapter of a three vast three volume book that he wrote in the early 1850s called The Stones of Venice, which was a which was an account of of architecture in Venice and and, and the visual arts in, in Venice before the moment at which he felt European culture went into decline in 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 the early modern period in 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 the renaissance he regarded the renaissance not as the great 
flowering that we tend to think of it as today, but as actually as a decline from a, the high point of medieval creativity. And in this chapter, in the second volume of Stones of Venice, called the the Nature of Gothic, John Ruskin unleashed a, a really very powerful polemical attack on contemporary industrial capitalism. So ostensibly the chapter is about defining what makes the Gothic Gothic. But in order to do so, in order to evoke the individuality, the creativity of the artisanal workmen of the Middle Ages, working, for example, on the cathedrals of Venice or elsewhere in Europe, he drew attention to a contrast with the industrial worker of the mid-19th century at the time he was he, he was writing. A particularly famous passage in which Ruskin talks about those who work in factories creating glass beads. So glass beads produced purely as ornament for middle class and upper middle class women. And Ruskin pointed out that this was a completely pointless product. It was a completely pointless commodity, had a purely decorative purpose, and even more heinously demanded no creativity and individuality on the part of the worker. So the factory worker just has to lop off bits of glass as it came out of a of a machine. And in effect, what he argued was that the workman, as a result, was also lopped off, was also atomized, was also dismantled, just became a, a series of kind of moving machinic parts. Now, all of that was absolutely crucial to Morris, who in fact later on produced an addition of the nature of Gothic, a special volume. He excerpted the chapter and produced a, a special edition of it with his uh, imprint, the Kelmscott Press. And he wrote a little a little preface to it where he talks about it being the only, I'm going to, again, paraphrase rather poorly, but the only necessary and inevitable utterance, I think he said, of the 19th century was this attack on industrial capitalism, one that was influenced by other thinkers of the time, people like Thomas Carlyle, but uh, but but also I think speaks to people within the Marxist tradition because it's effectively a critique of of alienation and of the commodification of the worker. But Ruskin was really affirming the imagination and the importance of imaginative creative labour in the nineteenth century at a time when it was very much under threat, and that was crucial to to Morris. The following clip comes from an interview with the British Labour politician Tony Benn for a documentary about Morris. He approached socialism in a very interesting way. He saw people as complete people and he somewhat idealised the craftsmen of the Middle Ages and then he compared it with the way that industrialisation broke people into wage slaves, specialised them to the point where they lost any interest or capacity to understand the work they did. And... uh, he saw industrialization as destructive of the human spirit and looked for something else. And then he moved later in his life, as many people do from experience, or in his case, of course, his love of art, into an understanding of society and what society did to art and became a socialist, became a Marxist, became involved in, in socialism, Socialist League, Social Democratic Federation, Hammersmith, Socialist Society, and so on. And his ideas were essentially human ideas, which have an enormous appeal. 
In every country, in every period of history, two flames have always burned. The flame of anger against injustice and the flame of hope that you could build a better world. Now, Morris was inspired by those flames. He fanned those flames. He allowed those flames to illuminate his thinking. And never underestimate the idea that hope is the fuel of social progress. Fear drives you back into your shell. Uh, and when people are frightened, they turn to fascism. That's Mussolini and Hitler were a product of fear. Morris gave us hope. And hope is what induces people to give more of themselves than they otherwise would. So never underestimate the importance of the dreamer. Morris said that he had gone through no transitional period. That was the phrase that he used on the way to becoming a socialist in his middle age. How would you assess that claim? I think it was uh, it was probably not entirely ingenuous, that claim. There's another reading of his conversion, to put it in, in rather unneutral terms to socialism in the early 1880s, which is, in effect, E.P. Thompson's, who talks about him, he borrows the metaphor from Morris, but he talks about Morris crossing a river of fire, which suggests a really quite punctual moment, a punctual, a, an acute moment at which he, he passes from a, a sort of liberalism or a radical li- liberalism by then to socialism proper but of course there's another sense in which i think all his career all his life indeed was 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 a preparation for that moment i don't want to be overly tendentious in in looking at his his life and <laughs> suggest that it was all about his conversion to socialism in 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 relatively late middle age but there's a sense in which both that class resentment that he accumulated growing up in the upper middle classes that I've already talked about, but also his engagement with art and with Ruskinian ideas, his early political interventions prior to becoming a socialist. All of this led to that that particular moment. The, the activism that preceded the moment at which he, he became a socialist centred on, on two main things, really. One was uh, he joined an organisation called the Eastern Question Association, which was set up by radical liberals on the whole to critique and campaign against Disraeli's policy, imperialist policy, which involved a, an alliance with the with the Ottoman Empire. And he, he became quite active there, writing songs and pamphlets and, and demonstrating that kind of thing. And the other thing he was doing less overtly political at this time, was setting up something called the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, uh, which he used to refer to as anti-scrape. And that was because he realised that medieval churches, which were particularly precious to him, not least because of Ruskin's uh, influence on on his aesthetics and his understanding of, of social history, medieval churches and other buildings were being destroyed in the mid to late 19th century by i mean in a sense i suppose we'd call them gentrifiers they were they were people who were instead of managing the decline of these buildings and preserving them were doing rushed jobs which sort of pimped up their decorative qualities to uh you know not, not least to to make them sort of commodifiable I, I suppose and morris campaigned very very vigorously to preserve these old buildings so so that was another aspect and then in in 1883 he joined finally 
the Democratic Federation, as it was, it was known then, which was an organization run by someone called Henry Heinemann, who at least officially was, was a Marxist, an orthodox Marxist. Uh, he knew Engels, for example. In fact, he was, he was far from a revolutionary. And very quickly, in fact, Morris exceeded the confines of, of both Heinemann and, and the Democratic Federation and became a, a self-described revolutionary. William Blake had far more in common with William Morris than a first name. An artist, writer and political visionary with a romantic sensibility and a keen interest in the medieval world, Blake anticipated the path followed by Morris a century later. He was also a fierce opponent of the British social order. And just like Morris, Blake was carefully defanged by conventional opinion after his death. His revolutionary anthem, Jerusalem, has become a staple at mawkish celebrations of British nationalism. Post-punk musician Mark Stewart, lead singer of the pop group, recorded his own version of Jerusalem in the 1980s. It was much closer to the spirit of Blake than the last night of the proms. Once Morris had become active in an avowedly socialist organisation, what positions did he adopt and what was his experience from that point on? Well, it was, as I, as I said, deeply factional, the socialist movement at the, the time. That wasn't just because of a sectarianism, although there was a certain amount of sectarianism, I think. It was because the movement was so young and because its relationship to the organised working class was relatively unstable and volatile and and unformed. So everything was in flux at this period. And there's, there's a lot of movement ideologically, politically, within factions, within organisations. We can't see it in sort of fixed, stable terms. In the Democratic Foundation, Morris very soon did begin to chafe against the reformism that was definitive of it, thanks to to its leader Henry Heinemann. It turned in, I think, probably late in eighteen eighty three. It became the Social Democratic Foundation, which was another sign of the fact that everything was in in flux at this at this point in in, in the history of the left in in Britain. But Morris reached a certain point in eighteen eighty four when he simply didn't feel 
that he was comfortable in an organization which, as he saw it, was postponing socialism to some future towards which Britain, the world, as it were, would would eventually just evolve. He lost faith in the idea that that socialism could just emerge out of capitalism and out of its its contradictions. He no longer believed that. He began to believe effectively in in class war, in the necessity of waging class war against the ruling class. He was already conscious that the ruling class are defined by the, the war they wage against the working class. So he formed in 1884 uh, a breakaway organisation called the Socialist League with various other figures who were in exile from the, uh, from the from the Social Democratic Federation, including Eleanor Marx, in fact, Marx's remarkable daughter, and someone called Ernest Belfort Bax, who was very important in educating Morris. And he continued his activities as a, as a socialist there, where he had more autonomy and played a more central role. He edited the journal Commonweal, for example, which was a really important organ, although one with a, with a relatively small audience, needless to say, at this time. He went up and down the country, I mean, to, to, to an exhausting extent, standing on podiums, giving speeches, supporting strikes, handing out leaflets, doing all the sorts of things that uh, to this day uh, revolutionary socialists do. Uh, he wrote, he wrote poetry, he wrote songs and hymns for the cause, as it was known. He wrote novels. All of them contributed to his campaign to assert a, a, a revolutionary socialist current within the left in the in, in the late 19th century. And, you know, and he was arrested for, you know, he, he, it's not like he was an armchair socialist at all. He was accused of being a sort of champagne socialist, as we call them today, not least because he, he, continued to run a company that produced textiles which were principally bought by the by the middle classes to his 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 disappointment but he he was by a long way from a from an armchair socialist and and you know was arrested on demonstrations particularly involved in the violent fracas that took place between police and demonstrators in in November 1887 known as Bloody Sunday, which led a week later to the death, in fact, of an activist, a young working class activist. So he was he was really embroiled in the in the everyday textures of of the socialist movement. And he was very uncompromising in his revolutionism. We're now going to hear a clip from an interview with Raymond Williams, talking about Morris in the light of 20th century socialism. He did quite realistically see that there would be a problem of trying to get any different kind of social order through parliament which would alter the political relations when you've still got the economic relations as they were and he believed that the people who benefited by the existing economic relations would stop it happening even if there were a serious possibility of doing it but above all he believed and uh, this remains the uh, the necessary critique of parliamentary ideas of socialism or even of democracy, that you have to make socialists, you have to make democrats. I mean, people have to become those things, or none of it will happen anyway, whatever happens in parliament. Yet the thing that comes through most to the 20th century, or perhaps that isn't the way to put it, the thing that ought to have come through, but that uh, for a couple of generations was forgotten, 
was this emphasis on, on meaning in work. What went wrong, I think, was that at a certain point it was assumed that by more production you got both more equality and more significance and respect. And you have only to look at the most productive economies in the world, let alone ones which, like Britain, are relatively uh, poor in production, to see that it doesn't matter how much you increase production in this gross way that was then thought about. You neither get rid of certain kinds of poverty, nor do you restore the sense of respect and, and meaning that Ruskin was arguing for and that Morris brought much more to the centre. Morris might very well be seen in today's political terminology as a pioneer of eco-socialism. How did his understanding of the processes of urbanisation and industrialization that were transforming Britain and the wider world in the late 19th century differ from the view that was held by many of his Marxist contemporaries? Well, I think the key thing in this regard is is Morris's romanticism. He was very much a romantic and he remained a romantic, I think. Now, there's a sense in which Marx himself was a romantic and had, had grown up in an earlier generation in Germany, of course, influenced by the romantics, writing romantic poetry in, in, in his youth. But unlike Marx, Morris had very little handle of on economics. He was uh, he was he was rather sort of baffled and intimidated by economic language and economic analysis, and he stuck. He cleaved very closely to his romantic affiliations, which came down from the romantic poets through Carlyle and Ruskin and others, and which formed a a kind of anti-capitalist critique, I suppose, that was rooted, and in some cases, of course, including in the case of Carlyle, that took a really quite reactionary form. Um, in Morris, a, a much less reactionary, indeed a revolutionary form. But but in that entire tradition, there's an identification of nature with the pre-capitalist past and with some kind of alternative to capitalism. So even when he was sort of banging in his head against his French translation of of Das Kapital, which was what he wrestled with in the early 1880s, he, he didn't even speak French particularly well, but he worked his way through painstakingly the French translation of Das Kapital because there wasn't an English translation to rely on at, at the time. But all the time, I think what animated him, what he was doing from a sort of libidinal or utopian urge as opposed to from a sense of, of, of sort of political and economic duty was to think of the ways in which capitalism industrial capitalism was was destroying what was most precious about life about the individual life and about collective life and central to that was the natural world it was a, a sense of of a precious ecology that needed to be husbanded, uh, the resources of which needed to be husbanded and, and not not ruthlessly exploited and commodified. There were very few other socialists, certainly revolutionary socialists that, at that time, I think, who who were so indebted to a romantic tradition, and 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 that meant that ecology was to the fore in a way that it wasn't going to be again until the I don't know the the nineteen sixties. 
The actor Jonathan Price read several passages from the work of Morris for a documentary in the 1980s. People are beginning to murmur and say, so we have won the battle with nature. Where then is the reward of victory? We have striven and striven, but shall we never enjoy? Man that was once weak is now most mighty, but his increase of happiness, where is that? Have we done more than change one form of unrest for another? We see the instruments which civilization has fashioned. What is she going to do with them? Make more and more and yet more? Meantime, what is civilization doing? Day by day, the world grows uglier. And where in the passing day is the compensating gain? Riches we have won without stint. But wealth is as far from us as ever. Or it may be farther. Come then, since we are so mighty, let us try if we can to do the one thing worth doing. Make the world, of which we are a part, somewhat happier. How did Morris come to write his utopian novel, News From Nowhere, and what were its main themes? So he wrote News From Nowhere in 1890 and, and 1891, and it was serialised, in fact, in The Commonweal, in the journal that he edited for the for the Socialist League at the time. And so we should take its title, literally. It's, it's as it were, bulletins from from the socialist future, from some communist future. It's news from nowhere. But he wrote it, I mean, it probably wasn't read by a huge number of workers at the time, but it was It was certainly aimed at workers. His purpose as an activist in this period was, as he put it, to make socialist. He was in the business of making socialists, that's his phrase. And it was. it was yet another of his attempts to make socialists this time not by critiquing capitalism and by combating exploitative factory owners and that kind of thing, but by showing what it might be like in a post-capitalist future. Now, clearly, that kind of discourse, that kind of approach was was relatively disreputable even by then in the Marxist tradition. And he very much called himself a Marxist. One only has to think of, of, of Engels's socialism utopian and scientific to to get a, a sense of that but he really believed in the importance of utopian thinking again perhaps it's part of his romantic inheritance he believed in cultivating and instrumentalizing if i can and put it in those slightly utilitarian terms what he called the longing for freedom i, I often think of Walter benjamin's line in, in the thesis on, on the philosophy of history from from 1940, where he talks about how the second international reformist parties of the socialist movement spend too much time sort of talking about the great new dawn of socialism and how, in fact, socialists should be inspired and the working class above all should be inspired by what he calls enslaved ancestors rather than liberated grandchildren. But Morris, I think, is one of the few people in the history of the revolutionary socialist movement who has managed to make a really powerful case for orienting our politics, not just on the past, on the enslaved ancestors, but on on the future, on, on our liberated grandchildren. 
And to that end, in News From Nowhere, he attacks a, I won't go into too much detail about this, but he attacks a tradition of reformist utopianism that's particularly associated in the late 1880s with a an American journalist called Edward Bellamy, who wrote an unbelievably successful utopian novel. 1888, uh, Looking Backward, it was called, set in Boston in the year 2000. And it imagines capitalism simply evolving into uh, socialism. So so socialism is effectively a sort of corporate one nation version of socialism. It was unbelievably successful. I mean, it was the, one of the, I think it was only the second novel in, in, in the 19th century in America to sell more than a, a, a million copies. It was phenomenal in its impact. And all sorts of organizations sprung up in order to promote its ideas. Morris was extremely suspicious of it and very disturbed that Bellamy's book was beginning to capture socialism and, and utopianism on the left. So News from Nowhere was an intervention. It was a deliberate assertion of a revolutionary socialist tradition, which didn't give up on the idea that utopian longing, that the longing for freedom was an important motivating force in activism. And it, you know, he, it, it differed in many ways from Bellamy's book, but one of the striking things that it does, and something that made it a, a really very, very innovative and unusual and powerful utopian novel was that it described the historical process in detail by which communism emerges from capitalism. And importantly for Morris, that's not just evolution. It's not just a blandly, abstractly sketched evolution from capitalism into socialism. It is. It involves struggle, class war. It involves pitched battles between the police and army on the one hand and the working class on the other in London. And it, it's it's very graphic in its account of the historical process. So, so that's one of the things. The other thing I'd just quickly draw attention to, I suppose, is its emphasis on on the artistic, the historic and the artistic, as it were. So he there portrays an artisanal form of labour, clearly indebted to Ruskin, which effectively acts as a critique of, of commodity production under capitalism. Unlike Marx, for example, Morris believed that, that work was the key to the future, that it wasn't about surpassing work. It wasn't about mechanising work so that we free ourselves to do other things, to you know, hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon and philosophise in the evening. But work was where we were going to derive most pleasure in the socialist future, in an egalitarian future, in a future in which everyone uh, owned everything. Everyone owned the wealth and the resources of society. We would take pleasure in the act of working because it was not mechanized, because it was not reified, because we were not being exploited, having our surplus value extracted in in so doing. So it's very committed to the idea of, of labor, not as something we have to get beyond, but as something we have to redeem in revolutionary ways. This is another reading by Jonathan Price this time from the text of News From Nowhere. Some faces I saw that were thoughtful, and in these I noticed great nobility of expression, but none that had a glimmer of unhappiness. And the greater part, we came upon a good many people, were frankly and openly joyous. I thought I knew the Broadway by the lie of the roads that still met there. 
On the south side of the road was an octagonal building with a high roof, not unlike the baptistry at Florence in outline, except that it was surrounded by a lean-to that clearly made an arcade or cloisters to it. It also was more delicately ornamented. This whole mass of architecture which we had come upon so suddenly from amidst the pleasant fields was not only exquisitely beautiful in itself, but it bore upon it the expression of such generosity and abundance of life that I was exhilarated to a pitch that I had never yet reached. I fairly chuckled for pleasure. One thing that's very striking about the book for a modern reader is that the future Morris has in mind is effectively post-industrial. Manchester has ceased to exist, or so we're told. London is still there, but it's much smaller, and there's virtually no machinery. Yes, that's right. He he cuts corners here because he does, in a rather vague way, at one point refer to what he calls force barges. It's the one sort of science fictional touch in the in the novel, and what he seems to be saying is that these force barges, whatever the hell they are, are are somehow doing a lot of the the mechanical industrial work, and that they are therefore freeing up humans to engage in 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 these redeemed forms of of labor now that you know it's a perfectly legitimate case to make i mean after all today with ai we're having a debate about about what the future of this means for work you know that it could very crudely either lead to greater alienation or it could free us up to work three days a week instead of five or six or or seven and to cultivate our interests and our sensibilities and our everyday lives in quite new and and, and exciting ways if it were to be used in a non-exploitative way. Something like this debate was going on in the late 19th century and all sorts of people intervened, not just Morris, but, but People like Oscar Wilde in his his famous essay, "The Soul of Man Under Socialism," which was which is wonderful in in this respect, and talks about machines becoming the slaves of of men, so that we can all sit around and be like Oscar Wilde, so that we can all just cultivate our sensibilities, sit around smoking and and coming out with witticisms and reading reading beautifully made books, that that kind of thing. So Morris was clear that there might need to be he wasn't he wasn't completely giving up on the idea that mechanization and that some of the progressive aspects technologically speaking of capitalism might be of service in a socialist future but he doesn't give us any detailed sense of that there's nothing very concrete about it at all you're absolutely right that that it's a post-industrial society that he pictures and it's it's several hundred years after the the revolution that he describes in in the longest chapter of the book how the change came and and that is, does allow him to portray this ecologically much more rich and diverse world one in which humanity and, and nature are living in some kind of harmony where there's a a, a decentralization of britain as you say where the industrial cities seem to have completely disappeared there are political implications for this too. So, for example, in, in his portrayal of, of London, the Houses of Parliament has become a dung market. It's just become a place where where all the, the dung, which is, of course, the, the source of energy as well, as well as waste in the 19th century, is stored because politics happens elsewhere. It doesn't happen in the centralised circumstances of Westminster in London among 
unelected or scarcely democratically elected representatives. It's something that's woven into a, a truly egalitarian and, and, and democratic daily life. But yes, London is, he describes it, I think at one point, as, a, as like a small garden. There's a, an attempt to nurture the green spaces of London and to redeem it in, in that sort of way. In our own time, writers like Ursula Le Guin and Ian Banks have used science fiction as a channel for their socialist imagination. When she was belatedly honoured at the National Book Awards, Le Guin waved her political convictions from the stage like a red flag. I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. Right now, I think we need writers who know the difference between production of a market commodity and the practice of an art. Books, you know, they're, they're not just commodities. The profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. Modern sci-fi tends to imagine a high-tech version of socialism instead of the post-industrial variety in News From Nowhere. But the idea of travelling across time to see a future egalitarian civilization is still very much part of mainstream pop culture, as any Star Trek fan could tell you. A lot has changed in the past 300 years. People are no longer obsessed with the accumulation of things. We have eliminated hunger, want, the need for possessions. Then what's the challenge? The challenge, Mr. Offenhaus, is to improve yourself enrich yourself. Enjoy it. In this episode of The Next Generation, the time traveller in question is Mark Twain, who was born just a year after William Morris. So there are privileged few who serve on these ships, living in luxury and wanting for nothing. But what about everybody else? What about the poor? You ignore them. Poverty was eliminated on Earth a long time ago. And a lot of other things disappeared with it. Hopelessness, despair, cruelty. Young lady, I come from a time when men achieved power and wealth by standing on the backs of the poor, where prejudice and intolerance are commonplace and power is an end unto itself. And you're telling me that isn't how it is anymore? That's right. Mm. Maybe. It's worth giving up cigars for, after all. As a final question, how do you sum up the political legacies of Morris for 
our own time and our own way of thinking about the world? Um, one of the things that he said about about capitalism was that it destroyed art and the beauty of the earth. And I think we could take those two strands as absolutely crucial to his his political legacy. He believed that all work should be a form of art and that all art should be a labour, but a productive labour, one that expanded one's faculties and, and, and sensibility. So his aesthetic legacy is really important. I mean, he was a he was a poet, most famous as a poet in his own time, more more famous as a poet even than as a, a textile designer. But that tends to have been been forgotten. I think art is is absolutely crucial not just to his practices, but to his whole conception of socialism, where everyday life in effect itself becomes a kind of art form. I suppose everything is is aestheticized in Morris, but not in some reactionary sense. I mean, to cite Benjamin again, Benjamin talks about the difference between the, the left and the right being being the difference between politicizing aesthetics and aestheticizing politics. There's, there's a sense in which Morris rather contradicts that, I think, because he sort of thinks that everything should be aestheticized too not as the fascist aestheticized politics, but in the sense that everyday activities like electing local representatives, like organizing the workplace, like organizing leisure as a collective rather than an individualized consumerist activity, become a kind of art form, become something, a collective, a collaborative art form, one that requires our imaginative and creative input as well as some more mechanical administrative one so transforming our notion of art and transforming our notion of of the way in which art might serve as a kind of model for all other aspects of life i think that's a crucial legacy of his the other is the ecology i think is that emphasis on the beauty of the earth so that does make him i think particularly serviceable today uh, you know he like many of his contemporaries he was he was influenced by darwin but not the darwin who was turned into a, a social darwinian by people on the right in the late 19th century and 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 thereafter he was very much a, a darwinian who saw nature as a not just a competitive process but as a as a cooperative one i mean that's that's in darwin too of course so i, I think maintaining tending to nature not exploiting its resources that's that's a crucial paradigm for our own our own time but i suppose the the third point i'd make about his legacy is relates to to his utopianism again to the fact that he he to some extent does salvage utopianism i i think one of the ways he salvages it at a time when in the late 19th century utopianism was incredibly popular as a political discourse i mean everyone on the left and indeed some on the right were were writing utopias were fantasizing about the future very few of them were doing it with the depth and seriousness that morris was very few of them were well almost none of them were doing it with that historical imagination that he had or uh, with a sense that i think of the textures of everyday life i mean he was a he was a good novelist and most of the utopians of the, of the late 19th century weren't but he makes a, a fantastically compelling plea for the utopian imagination as, as i've already 
said, I think, in News From Nowhere, just quickly to go back to that in conclusion, he talks about it being akin. He talks about the longing for the socialist future as being akin, again, I'm paraphrasing rather poorly, akin to the passionate yearning, I think it is, of a lover, something like that. And in some ways, of course, that that seems to trivialise the longing for a non-exploitative society, the longing for socialism. He's in, apparently individualizing it and trivializing it. But there's another sense in which I think that's incredibly powerful. The idea that in fighting for socialism, we might not just feel hatred of capitalism and hatred of the ruling class, as of course we must do, but one might also feel a, an almost erotic longing, a, a libidinal, perhaps that's a better word, a libidinal longing for an alternative, for a genuine alternative to that exploitative system. And News From Nowhere is very, very moving. It has its main character, who is the Morris figure, who who lands in this socialist future to his initial confusion. He falls in love with someone. He falls in love with someone who lives in this, in this utopian future, a woman. And very brilliantly, I think, Morris gives us a sense that 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 feeling of falling in love with this woman, which he communicates through his central character, is is equivalent to and might mimic and reproduce the the intensely felt longing that one might have for a future in which we feel fulfilment as individuals and, and as a collective. Many thanks to Matthew Beaumont for that introduction to the life and work of William Morris. You can read his article, The Socialist Imagination of William Morris, on the Jacobin website. We're going to finish now with a piece of music by the composer Gustav Holst, who is a comrade of Morris in the Socialist League. He dedicated this part of a symphony to Morris. Morris. 